From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, cross-linking and AI lens calculations at ESCRS 2017. It's not between collagen fibers, but rather between the amino terminal side chains of collagen fibers and the extracellular matrix. First this. Wow, that's really cool. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol, and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning, and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2017 meeting of the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons in Lisbon, Portugal. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Marconi Santiago on wound healing in cross-linking and Warren Hill on IOL calculations with machine learning. I'm here with Marconi Santiago. Marconi gave a wonderful talk, really interesting. You know, when we talk about cross-linking, one question that, that, that comes up that turns out to be very, very nuanced is what's actually being cross-linked? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Thank you very much for having me here today. Yes, since 2003, when we had the, when we had the first publications about cross-linking, the literature in this field has expanded uh, exponentially, and a, a, our as as our understanding uh, about cross-linking, the whole cross-linking process uh, evolves, as should um, our knowledge about the whole wound healing and remodeling after this process. There are, uh, there remains a gap uh, in our knowledge regarding what really uh, happens in the corneal cross-linking. It's not between uh, collagen fibers, but rather between the, the side chains of the amino terminal side chains of collagen fibers and the extracellular matrix. And this is very important because there are at least uh, three topics that you need better understand and in my opinion are related to that. One is the whole remodeling, intense remodeling after cross-linking. There's an ongoing process there, and sometimes we could see corneas that could flatten to the point of uh, 5, 7, 10, sometimes 14 diopters. And this is very important and, and, and very important and have some other implications. For example, 
the indication of intercornering segments. That's a very important topic too. In my opinion, we should consider rings only after cross-linking for a couple reasons. One is because of this remodeling process, we should uh, do cross-linking, halt the progression, change the disease first, and then wait for this remodeling process that takes, like I said, some, uh, the, the, the maximum would be somewhere between 10 and, and 14 months. And then, at that time, consider intercornial ring. But the other reason why I should, you should consider intercornial ring only after cross-linking is also because we would change the extracellular matrix. We would uh, have something that would create less room for cross-linking to occur, since now we better understand this process and know that it actually occurs between, like I said, the amino-terminal side chains of collagen fibers and the extracellular matrix. So when we use a ring, we have a lower room there for the extracellular matrix and the cross-linking really occur. That's why, in my opinion, we should wait to do intercornering rings only a year after that. Uh, another important subject, if you if you allow me to, to speak about, is we need to understand that cross-linking basically in, in includes three 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 things to ha to really happen: a photoinducer, a light source that needs to be safe and effective, and the actual uh, photochemical reaction. And considering that, we know that the the most important, the standard photoinducer is riboflavin, and needs to, to because of the epithelium tight junction, it needs to we need to to be effective, we need to remove, actually remove the epithelium. And that goes, and that goes to a part of my talk, which is actually a systematic, a systematic review and meta-analysis where we showed, and systematic review and meta-analysis provide the highest evidence level. And we showed, I think, three very important informations. One, when we compare, when we investigate the comparative studies of cross-linking and doing nothing, we, we can confirm with systematic review and meta-analysis that cross-linking really works. Second, related to what I was talking uh, previously now, the accelerated protocols actually work compared to nothing and have a similar effect in terms of halting progression compared to the standard protocol, although it provides a, a, less, a less intense remodeling and a shallower uh, demarcation line, but it does work. That's the important, an important finding from our systematic review. And third, but not less important, is that the epi-on protocol, because of the tight junctions, actually pro uh, does not work compared it's, or I would say, let's put it this way, it's, it's significantly less effect compared to the standard protocol. So that's a very important information based on a systematic review. So if you, are, if you have in your mind now, should we go ahead and do epi on or epi off, our systematic review is providing some evidence that the epi off is significantly more, uh, significantly better, provides significantly better results in terms of halting progression. Marconi, this is really fascinating stuff, and, you, you've, and you've packed a lot in here. I've got two questions that are sort of disparate questions. One is, since the cross-linking is, is, does not seem to be, is not, between collagen fibers, but between uh, collagen fibers and extracellular matrix, what does this mean in terms of, of wound healing, um, bo both the wound healing that we seek and the wound healing that we would categorize as sort of pathological and undesirable? And... Number two, 
having incorporated all of this all, what do you do in your own practice? Yeah, so uh, to answer your first question, this is a very good question, is that first, uh, knowing that the cross-linking actually occurs between the side, side chains of collagen fibers and the extracellular matrix, is, is probably, uh, provides, it, it probably provides an explanation why we have this very intense wound healing first, why we have to understand better what are the predictive factors that will uh, give us you know, better and uh, uh, enable us to better understand who, who are the patients who will flatten the most. And more important, it provides an explanation for some potential side effects related to cross-linking. For example, uh, corneal infiltrates because of the interaction of, the, of, the, of this photochemical reaction with, if, with the extracellular matrix. We start to have some pro native proteins uh, recognized as non-cells by the organism. So we have this corneal infiltrates that actually uh, are, are tr easily treated with, with uh, steroids and disappear in a week, but it's something that could be scary for those who are not familiar with cross-linking. A second very important point related to this, uh, uh, to this better understanding of this, of this whole cross-linking thing is the, is the corneal opacity or, or, or corneal haze. As opposed to the haze that occurs after PRK, the haze that occurs after cross-linking is more transi transient, and it's because it's related to fibroblasts that undergone apoptosis and disappear, and compared to the, to the myofibroblasts after PRK that actually takes more time to disappear. Uh, we need the, the, the interaction between fibroblasts and cytokines to have the, transfer the transformation between, uh, uh, from fibroblasts to myofibroblasts. That's, that's what actually occurs in PRK, and it does not occur after cross-linking. So in cross-linking, you have a more transient haze because it's only fibroblasts, and it's, only, it's also important to say it goes deeper in the cornea because since it does not need the cytokines that are in the epithelium to, to transform into, into myofibroblasts, it, they are also deep in the stroma. You know, the fibroblasts are also found deep in the stroma. So the haze in cross-link is deeper and more transient. And it's also related to the change in, in the extracellular matrix. So that's why your question is very important. And answering your second question, in my practice, I, what I do is something... That, that's, that's, that's a very good, good point. In my practice, what I do is, if I recognize the patient with a progressive keratoconus, adult patient with a, an adult with progressive keratoconus, or in the pediatric age, regardless of being uh, detect uh, progression or not, and ectasia after LASIK, those are three situations where I do cross-linking. But the most important part of this is after cross-linking, I wait at least 10 to 12 months to consider a refractive procedure that could either be a scleral contact lens or an intracorneal ring segment. I wait for the remodeling process to, to occur somewhere between 10 and 12 months. And normally, and this, and this should be said, we do cross-linking in the worst eye. It's a bilateral disease, but we start with the worst eye. So, so some, some people ask me, oh, but you, you're going to wait to, for a refractive procedure 10 to 12 months. Yeah, but that patient was already actually seeing through the better eye. And that eye, you, you continue to do that, it, it's, its work. So... I will wait after cross-linking, I will wait 10 to 12 months, and then I will consider the refractive procedure. This is a very important message to, to, to give today. Mark, this is wonderful stuff. I mean, in, in just, just a few minutes, you've packed in so, so much stuff. I've learned so much from this, this conversation. I, I'm grateful on a personal level. And, you know, I want to thank you for your, your, your generosity with your time with us today. 
No, thank you very much. To finish this, I, w I would like to say that it's as a, as a foreseeable but unfortunate problem of this rapid, rapid expansion of cross-linking is that the tremendous uh, variation in terminology. And we are publishing an editorial soon that is going to come out in the Journal of Refractive Surgery trying to have a, a, a box and a compilation of how we should uh, actually approach cross-linking, how we should, the names we should use. So yes, thank you very much for having me here today. It was a great pleasure. I'm here with Warren Hill. Warren, I'm excited every time that I speak with you. I always learn new things, of new, new tools, and one of the most wonderful things is, is that every time that I talk to you, I change the way that I practice. Today is going to be no different. So you have this beautiful RBF uh, formula for lens calculation and this AI system um, that uh, very, very, very accurately predicts what the intraocular lens power uh, is and it's you know far be it from 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 me to to say this but you know Warren there were limitations and the limitations were that if I had someone with an unusual eye your AI system would you know warn me that I was outside of the of the envelope and I want to ask you by the way what that envelope means sure. I mean in practical terms also it was limited to refractive targets that that were Plano, and there are many clinical circumstances in which I want to choose a different target, particularly aim a little bit on the minus side. I understand that that's not the the, the case now, right. and I want to hear about the new iteration, but I want to understand first what this envelope means. Sure. Well, in artificial intelligence, um, we have validating boundary models, and if you have four variables, you actually have six pairwise boundary models, such as axial length versus central corneal power, central corneal power versus anterior chamber depth. And each one of these boundary models has limits. And we can set the limits to flag the user if or if not the calculation can be done at, say, a 90% level of accuracy. So when you get an out-of-bounds indication, it's telling us that I really don't have the data to support the calculation at a 90% accuracy level. The first version we had was based on about 3,400 cases with a really wide range of uh, preoperative parameters. The version that I, uh, that I announced today here at this, at this meeting show, was based now on about 24, I'm, I'm sorry, 12,400 cases. So not only have we increased the boundary model for normalized by about 7,000 cases, we've included the original um, cases but we now have more than a thousand exceptionally short eyes, and we've increased the boundary model for the extreme axial myope down to minus five diopters. So as everything, uh, every project has a beginning. We began with something modest. We're now doing more and more and more, and we now have 39 investigators in 17 countries uh, feeding us data. So I think with each iteration, it's gonna get better and better and better at what it's trying to do. And that sounds wonderful. But Warren, what if I want to target something other than, than Plano? Can I do that? Sure. Actually, that was one of the shortcomings of the first model. Because we didn't have a, a large number of cases, we had to sample the artificial intelligence model for each, each of the six pairwise boundary models at Plano. Now we have so much data that the user can input their target spherical equivalent you know, up to a point and it will do that calculation for you, while at the same time on either side, if there's not data to support, to support the calculation, it will actually flag you and tell you. Warren, how do I access this? And 
And Warren, what's it going to cost me? Okay. Well, the, the good news is uh, it's on the RBF Calculator website, rbfcalculator.com. It's free. You can use pretty much any biometer, optical biometer that you want, and it's free. It doesn't cost a thing. The next version of the LensStar software will probably be in late November, and it will be included in that software for that biometer. Warren, I, I, I want to thank, on, on, it's not my place to do it, but on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you for your, your, your tremendous generosity uh, in, in providing this and not charging for it. Uh, and I want to thank you for your generosity with your time with us today. It's great being here with you, Josh. Marconi Santiago is professor of ophthalmology at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro and at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Warren Hill comes to us from East Valley Ophthalmology in Mesa, Arizona. Ask questions of Dr. Santiago, Dr. Hill, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.